Good morning. It's good to be with you all. We're continuing in our study in the book of Psalms. We're actually getting down to the end here. Psalm 126 we're looking at this morning. Psalm 126. So if you can turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. I know we've already read it responsively, but we'll look at it one more time. Psalm 126, page 517, if you're using the Bibles here at the church. Page 517. This is one more of the Song of Ascents that we've been looking at. We've looked at three now, and we've got only a couple more weeks that we'll be studying the book of Psalms. Psalm 126. All right. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. O Lord God, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would shine your light upon these words that we look at this morning. We ask, God, that you would show us the riches of your glory and make it fresh to us, new, so that we might be drawn into worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Sir Walter Scott's novel, Ivanhoe, the hero returns to England from many years of war to find that things have changed quite a bit while he was away. Uh, The king, Richard the Lionhearted, has not returned from war, at least so everyone thinks. And so while he's gone, his evil brother, Prince John, has taken over. And so Ivanhoe is restored to his homeland, but he has to seek more restoration. And of course, he needs King Richard to show up so that by the end of the book, uh, his, his true love can be restored to him and his castle and his family and his health. Well, the writer of Psalm 126 is in a similar place actually. The the beginning of the psalm refers to this great restoration, some event that has occurred. Most likely, this is referring to the return of the exiles from Babylon. Uh, You remember, they spent many years in exile there, uh, and then against all hope and to the shock of the surrounding nations, in 538 BC, King Cyrus of Persia sent all those Jewish people who wanted to go back, back to Jerusalem with his blessing to rebuild the city as well as resources to do it. 
It's a dream come true for them. These people have prayed and wept for decades as they waited for this restoration. But as their initial joy fades, they find there is still a lot to be done. There's a lot of hard work to be done. Only a remnant of people actually return. The people are poor. Many things need to be rebuilt. And all the while, there are enemies circling outside. So the psalmist prays for further restoration. And we join him as those who have been brought into the kingdom of God, but yet who labor in a land whose king has not yet returned. So how do we seek restoration? The psalmist helps us this morning. First, we need the confidence of restoration, the confidence of restoration. So that will be my first point. It is tempting to come to the Lord first with what you need, isn't it? But that's not where Psalm 126 begins. It begins with a memory. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And you need to see here that a key part of being a confident Christian is remembering. If you are prone to forget, you will be prone to doubt as well. I'm sure all of you have experienced that what you want to remember is often those things that are most difficult to remember. And and the things that you would really like to forget are often the things that are most difficult to forget. Now that's why the psalmist spends the first half of his prayer just dwelling in this special memory from the past. We were like those who dream. He says, what are dreamers like? They don't have worries, right? They're not all weighed down by what they don't have. They don't have frown lines. They're, you know, they're floating in the clouds. They're optimists, not pessimists. They're idealists, not cynics. Their mouths are full of laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy. It's okay if you don't feel like a dreamer right now, but can you remember? A moment. The Bible warns Christians over and over again how important it is to remember God's deliverances. Do not forget, Moses warns Israel over and over again in his final speech to the people, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, The Apostle Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, that his goal, even after he's dead, is to be continually reminding the church of what they need to know. Uh, In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, Aslan, who is sort of the Christ figure of the book, if you're not familiar with those books, uh, he says to the main character several important things they need to remember And this is at the beginning of the book. And he warns them. He says, here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. 
Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. Remember, remember. That's a warning that stuck with me over the years when I first read that. And there's at least one memory of restoration that every believer can seek to remember, right? The time when you first began to submit to the Lord and to love Him. When you claim God as your Lord, He begins a work of restoration in you that you need to be delighted in. And you should feel some conviction here. We do not dwell enough on the wonder of God's Deliverance. He delivered us from slavery, and we don't dwell on it. We don't rejoice in it enough. The air down here is thick. We get confused by indwelling sin. We get confused by physical suffering. We get confused by and dominated by the memories we like to forget. And we need to remind and be reminded by those around us. And tell a testimony to someone today. And tell it to yourself, if no one else. I was reminded recently when uh, Jed professed his faith in front of us a couple weeks now back, how diverse the, the testimonies are in this church. And, and the strength, the being part of a body of believers, you know, with people from all different ages and different experiences out there is that we have this great collective memory of God's restorative work. But it's only collective if we share it. We have people who were delivered from years of unbelief and sorrow. We have people like Jed, right, who grew up in this church. We have people who may not yet have a memory of restoration, that time of deliverance. And then throughout our lives, if we are fighting sin, we will have story after story of restoration to rejoice in. Not, not one testimony, right, but a life full of testimonies. And when we nourish these memories, we keep them before ourselves because the air is thick. We will forget. we got to keep them before each other. And when we do that, we have confidence that God will restore us. It makes us confident. Now, before we leave this first point, we want to notice how the psalmist responds to remembering. There are two responses in the past these are part of the memory, right? In, in verse 3, uh, sorry, in verse 2, we've got the laughter and the shouts of joy that he's remembering. Uh, and then we've also got the words of the surrounding nations, the, the nations recognizing what God has done for these people. And, and, you know, that reminds us that part of the goal of our testimonies is to cause those around us to glorify God. That's the goal. We want God glorified, not ourselves. But... Notice the third response in verse 3 now. This is his response to the memory. This is what we miss out on if we fail to reflect on God's deliverances. Verse 3, the writer agrees in his soul with the words of the pagan nations. The Lord has done great things for us. 
we are glad. This is the affirmation that builds thankfulness and gratefulness and confidence. It's why we need to start our prayers by briefly laying aside our needs and first remembering and then affirming. God has been good. He has restored me. You will be tempted in your gloom to forget your past restoration or in your self-importance to claim your past restoration. So listen, if someone ever recognizes something good in your life, even if they're not as righteous as the nations around Israel were, recognizing that these things are from God, don't miss the opportunity yourself to say, the Lord has done great things for me. If your coworker or your relative ever comments, and you know, you're such a good, you're such a kind person, or how hard a worker you are, there's your chance to point up To God, take it. That's how we build our confidence of restoration. But now let's look at verse 4 and my second point, the power of restoration. The power of restoration. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Here's the central plea of this psalm. Just like Ivanhoe restored to his homeland, but finding there is still a lot more restoration that needs to occur. We find ourselves brought back to life and grateful, yet daily still needy for restoration. The exiles who came back to Jerusalem and likely wrote this psalm live in a city with broken down walls, with a burnt down temple, enemies Surrounding them, so few returned. And the ones that did are weak. We can relate. It's a different city. It's a different temple that needs restoration. But really the same enemies, the same reasons why so few join us, the same weaknesses that we deal with. And so like the exiles, we go to the only one with the power to restore, to the Lord. Notice that the psalmist directly addresses the Lord here in verse 4. It's the only place in the psalm that he does this. It's like he's sort of drawing a circle around his main point. His goal, restoration. That's my sermon title, Seeking Restoration. How does he seek that restoration? Well, first he begins by building his confidence with memories of the past. But there's only one place he can go for the power of restoration. He must pray to the Lord. And so he directs his attention to the Lord there in verse 4. There's work to be done too. We'll get to that. But restoration always begins with a certain helplessness. That's what drives us in prayer to God. Lloyd-Jones wrote that one of the most important pieces of revival in the life of a Christian is boldness in prayer. He writes, oh, that is the whole secret of prayer, I sometimes think. 
Uh, Thomas Goodwin uses a wonderful term. He says, sue him for it. Sue him for it. Do not leave God alone. Pastor him, as it were, with his own promise. Quote the scripture to him. And you know, God delights to hear us doing it. As a father likes to see this element in his own child, who has obviously been listening to what his father has been saying. You see, that's what the psalmist is doing here. He knows God doesn't change. So he reminds God what he did in the past, and then he says, please do it again. Restore us, oh Lord. And notice the image that he uses for this restoration. He asks that it, be, that it, that it look like streams in the Negev. Uh, So you can probably guess that the Negev is a bit of a desert. But just to make sure we're all clear on this, I've got some pictures of it for you. So Uriah, this is your time to, yes, thank you for bringing this up. I want you to, every Israelite would understand what this psalmist is speaking of when he says the Negev. So we want to get there too. So this map here, just to begin, shows us sort of the kingdom of Israel at its greatest extent. This is the time of Solomon, not probably when this psalm was written, but it's what you're probably most familiar with. So you see where uh, Amalek is in bold. Amalek is to the bottom in bold. It's to the left of Edom. Uh, that's about where the Negev was, this land of desert, this parched wilderness. And it extended all the way down really to the bottom of the green um, where the Red Sea begins. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, you can go ahead now, Uriah, and start giving us some of these photos. So you can see, you know, the word Negev actually means dry, parched ground. Uh, so, I mean, it's pretty obvious based on the pictures why they would call it Negev then. Um, you can see it's a dry land. This is not a place, right, where you would grow uh, your tomatoes and your lettuce. This is not really a place where much at all would probably live from the pictures, as you can see. Um, Last week, the Corbins came over, and they helped me expand my vegetable garden. Now, if my backyard looked like this, even the Corbins, who are vegetable garden pros, could not help me. Am I right, Anne? (laughs) So also, so also, Without the power of God, not even the most skilled professional can bring you restoration. That is the force of these images. This needs a miracle. Well, once in a while, you see, in the rainy season, streams trickle down into the land of the Negev through the different dry gullies. And what you get is, next slide, Uriah, life. You get life. A dramatic transformation from brown to green growth. That's what the psalmist pictures as he pleads with the Lord. Here, this is the sort of thing only God can do. God sends the rain, God withholds the rain, both on the Negev and on our lives. And so if we want green growth, like what we see in this picture, we need to seek the power of restoration by pleading with the Lord in prayer. 
Now, there's a second image in this psalm, and so we turn to my third point, the work of restoration. The work of restoration. Um, Verses 5 to 6 give us another farming image. And this reminds us that, you know, with water now flowing into our Negev lives, we have work to do. The, The Corbins can come expand my garden for me, but if I just let things go after they leave, all I've got is an even more impressive patch of weeds than I had before. Uh, sort of like the story Jesus told in Luke eleven twenty five about a demon leaving a person, coming back, finding him clean and empty, and this time bringing seven other uh, evil spirits, even more evil than him, so that the last state of the person is even worse than the first. We've got to pursue growth in our life. That growth is rooted in God's power, right? We just saw that, but we must work so that we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, there's three things we want to notice about the work of restoration here. First, it's a work of trust. It's a work of trust. Um, One of the most exciting parts of picking up gardening is looking at all the seed catalogs. Maybe you've done this. There are thousands of different seeds out there of all different kinds. You've got heirloom seeds that promise you multicolored fruits. You've got, you know, these hybrid seeds that are resistant to anything you could possibly imagine. You've got uh, seeds of vegetables you never heard of from some distant island, but hey, they look pretty cool. You've got, you know, just those seeds you just have to buy even though you know you have no space for them. Right? That's modern gardening. But the, the person who wrote Psalm 126 had no seed catalog to order from. He had only the seeds he had saved from last year. And once he put them in the ground, they're gone. To get more seed, he has to lose the seed he has. It, it's a work of trust, right? It's like the parable that Jesus told about the servants who were given money to invest by their master. Two servants put that money to work. They risk losing it, but they trust that with hard work, it will grow. But the third hides the money, right? He's afraid of losing it, and it doesn't grow at all. And what doesn't grow is not living. The work of the Christian who has tasted God's restoration, is not to hide away what the Lord gives you, but put it to work. You must sow in order to reap. As someone who is somewhat introverted, I am often tempted to hoard my emotional energy instead of engaging with those around me. And of course, I do need some time to myself. And yet, the work of sowing is hard, arduous work. And unless I am willing to sow, sometimes with tears, into people's lives, I cannot expect to reap with shouts of joy. And let me encourage you by saying I have had times of rejoicing. 
But this leads me to the second thing, which I want you to notice here. The work of restoration is a work of sorrow and joy. It's a work of sorrow and joy. This is part of what makes Psalm 126 unique, right? It focuses in on the emotional experience of sowing and reaping. It warns us to expect a bit of a roller coaster of a ride. The work of a Christian is hard one work. It will include tears. It will include weeping. And you don't need to stop weeping in order to be qualified to do the work. This psalm sets our expectations and, and, and validates our emotions. It tells us that if we persevere through the time of weeping, you know, even when our eyes are too blurry to, to see where we're going, even when we can't imagine that we would ever stop crying, they will be followed by shouts of joy. That's what this psalm teaches us. Because God's word always does something. So those who do his work will always reap his joy. Jesus compared the certain sorrow and joy of the Christian to a woman giving birth. She has certain sorrow, certain anguish in the time when she is giving birth. But when the baby finally arrives, which it always does, there's only one way out. That sorrow, that pain is transformed into joy. You may feel like sorrow, suffering, difficulty have made you useless. In fact, that is exactly the time for you to sow in hope. But I want to push even farther in this direction. I want to notice a third thing about the work of restoration. I want to notice that it is ultimately a work of death. We plead with the Lord for restoration in our lives, in our relationships, in our work, in, uh, in the lives of unbelievers around us, in, in our churches, in our nation, in our world. But full and final restoration only occurs for all of us when the Lord sows our physical body in black earth. Unless Jesus comes back soon, that is the only gateway to resurrection life. And where does this great harvest of resurrected lives begin? It begins with death, the death of Christ, who himself, in the days of his flesh, sowed in sorrow. He doesn't ask us to do something he himself is unwilling to do. Jesus said, speaking of his own body, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is predicting the harvest that he will initiate with the sowing of his own body in the grave. 
And then he calls his people to follow him into that work of death when he continues. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is what it means to bear the seeds for sowing. It means dying to yourself over and over again throughout your life, sometimes with tears, sometimes with great suffering, but always for the joy that is set before you. It means following your Savior into the grave when the Lord calls you. And it means rising again in one final glorious resurrection, when all your weeping and your sowing will be finished. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that there is an ark to our lives when we entrust them to you. We know, Lord, that you promise us a full and final restoration. You promise us, Lord, your power throughout our lives as we seek you, as we plead with you, as we remind ourselves of how you saved us from the beginning, bringing us out of slavery and making us your people. Pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in prayer Lord, that we rely on your power and not seek restoration based on our own power or based on the power of experts. But Lord, look to you as the one who can change us. And Lord, in hope, we pray that we would keep sowing even through times of trouble, through the weeping that accompanies our time in this world. knowing that you yourself will wipe away our tears. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.